0: Greetings again in Jesus' name. It's good to be together again as we continue to seek the Lord's face and to worship together collectively. Thank you for those devotional thoughts, Brother Luke. The God who inhabits eternity, we've been considering this week. Sending His Son back to take His chosen people into His presence for all eternity. Come to the closing evening, and you wonder how we got here so quickly, I wanna say a heartfelt thank you for everything. Your love, your words of encouragement throughout the week have meant much. The meals that we enjoyed in some of your homes and the food that was sent home with us. The rich fellowship, the generous uh, money gift, I've just never gotten used to feeling, it feels kind of unique or strange to get paid to do the Lord's work. I don't know why the rest of you feel that way, it it does. But it's deeply appreciated and thank you very much. We've been blessed, Vernon and I have been deeply blessed to learn to know you better as a congregation. I've always felt like to go away for a week of meetings. Wherever that place is at, that congregation always has a special place in your heart after that. It's been my experience. And this is so rich because the congregation that now has a more special place in our hearts is close enough home we can interact with you. We don't have to wait till minister's week to see you again and say hello. And uh, that's good. I've been challenged to consider having local brethren serve in our congregations more across the district lines and, and learn to know each other better. You know, we're all in this spiritual pilgrimage together We fight the same battles. We have the same adversary. But more importantly, we're indwelt by the same Holy Spirit and we have the same Savior. And may we ever work to encourage and bless each other in our walk. So thank you and God bless you as you continue on with him. I'd like to open this evening with a verse from Luke 18. It's a unique verse. I've never fully settled in my mind, it it fits the context, but as you're reading along, the verse just sort of jumps out at you and then Jesus immediately moves in to the next parable. And this is uh, Luke 18 and verse 8, and it's at the end of the parable of the persistent widow or the unjust judge or, or however you want to identify that parable. But he tells about this woman who came to this man, and he said he neither feared nor regarded man, and she was a widow, and she had an adversary, and she continually came and asked for relief from this judge. And then he said, even though I don't fear God, I will do this because she kept coming back. And at the end of verse 8, it's a really interesting little saying, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Now here's the saying, nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, Shall he find faith on the earth? Isn't that an interesting way to close that parable? When the Son of Man returns, as our brother was talking about, shall he find faith on the earth? And we know the answer to that question. The answer is yes, because he's coming back for his bride, the church, the blood-bought saints of Jesus Christ who have walked faithfully with him until death, He is coming back to receive them unto himself, and he said, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. We're looking forward to that, and Jesus is looking forward to that. So we know, yes, there will be faith on the earth. So the question then, I believe, to us is, not so much will there be faith on the earth, but will we be amongst those who are considered faithful? Will we be part of that faithful group? And there's a song that's impressed me for several years. Part of the reason why for several years I rented a tractor and a corn planter to plant corn and that same CD was in the, in the tractor several years in a row. He <laughs> obviously don't change very often. But here's the song that I listened to a number of times and then we actually have it on our own CD. It says, we are pilgrims on a journey of the narrow road. And those who've gone before us line the way, cheering on the faithful, encouraging the weary, their lives a stirring testament to God's sustaining grace. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe, and the lives we live inspire them to obey. O may all who come behind us find us faithful. Surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race, not only for the prize, but as those who've gone before us, let us leave to those behind us a heritage of faithfulness passed on through godly lives. And after all our hopes and dreams have come and gone, and our children sift through all we've left behind, may the clues that they discover and the memories they uncover become the light that leads them to the road we all must find." That's a challenging piece of, of poetry. May those who come behind us find us faithful. And that's the title of the message tonight. May those who come behind us find us faithful. And I'd like to consider briefly this evening two Old Testament characters and thinking about the influence they had on their generation and uh, challenging us to have a similar, and likewise influence on our generation. Uh, we will start in Esther 4. And as you're turning there. I'll just remind us of a verse that we considered earlier. In, well last week now. Last week. Where in the, in the book of Acts. As Paul was there at Athens at Mars Hill. And he was talking to these philosophers. And he reminded them. That there is a God in heaven. Uh, you know they were looking for this unknown God. And he said I know that God. And he's not very far from you. And he's the one who determined the times when you would live upon the earth and the bounds of your habitation. So this God has put us where we're at for this time and in this place. So the only question we have then is, God, how can we best serve you in the setting that you've called us to and where we find ourselves? And we're going to look together at a number of verses from Esther, the fourth chapter beginning at verse 14. And you know the setting. The decree went out to... To annihilate the Jewish people. Mordecai found out about it. And he went to his relative Esther. And he's imploring her to intercede for the behalf of herself and her people. And he said this in verse 14. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace. If you're not willing to go and intercede in our behalf. Then shall the enlargement and deliverance arise from the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So he came and laid it before Esther and he said, Esther, consider the fact that God has called you to the kingdom that you're in for such a time as this. And I'd like to take that out of context a bit and give us the same challenge. Has not God called us into his kingdom for such a time as this? And rather than cowering back in fear and talking about how terrible things are, let's pick up the baton and run the race. Let's run the race. Let's be faithful in our generation so those who come behind us, who sift through what we leave behind, will find the the strength and the commitment of our faith and our testimony and pick it up and carry it on to those who are yet to come until the Lord returns. And Then Esther bade them return to Mordecai with this answer. She said, Go together, go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, And fast ye for me, neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. Also, my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. So Mordecai came to Esther. He brought this challenge to her. And she came back with a challenge to him and said, we're in this together. It wasn't a one-person commitment to be faithful to God in that setting. She said, we're all in this together. I'm going to fast. My attendants are going to fast. I want all of you to fast. And then we're going to seek the face of God. We're going to seek God's protection. We're going to seek God's direction. Then I will go before the king. And if I lose my life doing it, I lose my life doing it. But I will be faithful for the people of my generation. They were all working together. In Acts chapter 20, Paul was telling the people around him, he said, I'm going up to Jerusalem. And they knew that danger awaited him there, and he was aware of it. And he said, I count not my life dear unto myself. If I perish when I go up to Jerusalem, that's okay. Because I count not my life dear unto myself. But he went on to say that... I want the testimony of being pure from the blood of all men because I've not shunned to declare, declare unto you the whole gospel of God. So Paul said, If I perish, I perish. But I want you to know that I'm going there. I will speak the truth of the word of God, just as he had up until that point. And he said, I'm going with a clear conscience because I have not failed to fulfill God's call in my life. And may we face death in the end of our lives with that same testimony. May we face the end of our lives with that same testimony. Now let's move over to another man of integrity who served his generation according to the Bible. And that's in Acts 13. Acts 13 gives us uh, the recording of A testimony about King David. And it's referring back to David's faithfulness to his generation, Acts 13 and verse 22. And it's talking about the history of God's people. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king. To whom he also gave testimony and said, I found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill my will. Throughout time, God has called people that he knew would fulfill his will. He has called them to places of responsibility because he knew what they would do. And we will continue to see that this evening as we look at another number of other uh, godly characters from the scripture. He said, I know David will do that. Now let's turn over to verse 36 of the same chapter. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid to his fathers and saw corruption. So this verse is telling us that David did what God knew he would do. He served God's purpose in his own generation and then God took him. That is all that God is calling us to do today. To serve him faithfully in our generation and to leave that legacy and that influence in our families and our churches and our communities all around us so that those who come behind us will find us faithful as the song said. And God is still looking for men and women in every generation who will do that. Are we available? Are you available? And there's a number of things that must be present in our lives if we're going to fulfill that calling. Number one, we must have a vision that goes beyond ourselves. We must have vision. We talk about people who've made a positive difference in the life of the church. We refer to them as visionaries, people who could look beyond the present and know what they needed to do. People who chose a destination and accepted the path. The second thing must be a willingness to live sacrificially, vision and sacrifice. Live sacrificially for the benefit of others and not our own convenience, but rather to do God's will in our generation. Esther risked her life to go before the king. David lived a life of danger for years and years and years because he was hated by Saul. Because he was a man of God and Saul knew that he would take his place and he was trying to eliminate him. David and Esther were people of vision and sacrifice. Their vision took them outside of their comfort zone and caused them to sacrifice convenience and safety for the purpose of serving the living God and the people of the living God. And that type of of commitment is paramount in transmitting vision and direction to the next generation. And I referred back last week as well about the frustration of those who persecuted the executioners of the Anabaptists. They said, the more of these people that we kill, the more of them there are. Because the vision of those people who are willing to give their life for the sake of the gospel was compelling. It was compelling. Are we willing to give our lives for the sake of Jesus Christ? I think about some more men who had commitments like that. Abraham. We'll be in Genesis for a while. Let's go to Genesis 13. Abraham was also a man. He was a friend of God. He was the father of our faith. And there were problems then, just like they are now. And the problems stem back that they had too much stuff. And that's a lot of our problems today. We have too much stuff, and we fight over it. And that was the problem there between the servants of Abram and the servants of Lot. And they had a meeting, and Abram, the older man, the patriarch, the godly man, he took this young man with him, Lot, and they stood on the crest of a hill, I believe. They said there where where that meeting took place, you can see over the vast area in front of it, and they stood there, and the older man took charge, and he allowed the younger man to choose. And Abraham said in the lot, verse 8, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between thy herdmen and my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. <laughs> Let's never forget that. <laughs> we be brethren. We're in this thing together. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. And if thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if thou wilt depart to the right hand, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan. It was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Aegis, as thou comest to Zor. And Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east and separated they separated themselves one from another. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. Lot, the entrepreneur, the lot looked out over there and he seen the well-watered plain and I believe he had dollar signs in his eyes and he seen the comfort of the city life in contrast to the nomad life that he'd been living with Uncle Abram. And he, was he a man of vision or was he not? He knew how to make money. But was he a man of vision or was he a short-sighted man? I believe what the scripture would bear out he was a short-sighted man. Then we see, in contrast to that, Abram. Abram continued to be a nomad. He continued to dwell in tents, and he continued to walk with the Lord. There were a number of foundational principles in Abram's life. Turn with me over in your Bibles to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Hebrews, the 11th chapter. And let's consider together the foundational principles of Abraham's life and we'll contrast that to the end result of Lot's life. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, the faith chapter. And we'll notice a number of foundational principles here and we'll drop in at verse eight of chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and went out, not knowing whether he went. Abraham, the friend of God, the father of faith, left the comforts of the place where he was at when God called him and said he went out, not knowing where he was going. It was a step of faith. Just like we considered several nights ago when Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee or to forsake following after thee, where you're going, I will go. Ruth, like Abraham, did not know her journey was going to end or how it would work out. Yes, she knew she was going to Bethlehem, Judah, but she had never been there before. It was a walk of faith. And God calls us also to a walk of faith, forsaking all others, No, that's marriage, sorry. But forsaking the world around us, we follow him. right. Let's notice a few more things. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise. And we talked about sojourning with Elimelech. Sojourn means you're turning aside while you're on the way to somewhere else. He sojourned in the land of promise. As in a strange country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs with him of the same promise. So in Abraham's life, aside from the fact the two times that he moved where he wasn't completely honest about his wife is the only two times i found in scripture where when he moved, he didn't build an an altar when he got to where he was going. But laying that aside, for the most part in Abraham's life, we'll notice when he moved, it said he arrived He pitched his tent and he built an altar. So he pitched his tent, was a temporary dwelling. But he built his altar of stone, which signified something of permanence. So his worship, his commitment to God, was something that was permanent and lifelong and eventually eternal. But his dwelling place on this earth was always subject to change and to move temporary. Now, we'll develop that here in verse 10. Why did he live that way? For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And what kind of foundation does that city have that he was looking for? There's stone, right? In the book of Revelation. And each stone has a name. It's a city That's built on stone. It's a city with a solid foundation. It's a city that will never dissipate or go away. Because it's a city whose architect and builder is God himself. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed. And was delivered of a child when she was past age. Because she judged him faithful who promised. So throughout their life Abraham and Sarah by faith embraced what God had for them in their lives. Therefore sprang there even one, to him as good as dead, as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore in Nirmal. So this is the man, and this is how he lived. But then verse 13, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, these all died in faith. The crown isn't at the beginning or halfway through. The crown is at the end. These all died in faith not having received the promises, faith in something that was beyond their ability to see. But having seen them afar off, they were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. I just love that verse. By faith, they were persuaded of something they couldn't see. Maybe couldn't even comprehend because the scripture tells us that the, the patriarchs and the prophets of the Old Testament longed to look into and to understand the things that we as New Testament saints have the privilege of being, uh, having opened up to us through the New Covenant. So that was so far off they couldn't see it, but they were persuaded of it. And then I've underlined in my Bible, they embraced them. How do you embrace something that's so far away you can't even see it? Only by faith. Only by faith. And out of that, they made a confession that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That was the foundation for the vision that Abraham and these other heroes of faith had. They had a heart that worshipped and obeyed God. Abraham had a faith that defies my ability to comprehend. If we move over in Genesis to chapter 22, we see him going up in response to God's call in his life to Mount Moriah, I believe it was, when God tested him, uh, yes, to Mount Moriah. And it says early the next morning, Abraham got up, he took his son, he took the donkey, he took his servants, and he took the fire, and he took everything he needed to fulfill what God had called him to do to take his son Isaac, his only son Isaac, as God identified him, and to offer him as a burnt offering on Mount Moriah. And Abraham said to his servants, in verse 5 of chapter 22, he said to his young men, Abide here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again unto you. Can you comprehend that faith? God said, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, up on this mountain and sacrifice him. And he told his servants, we are going to worship and we will come back again how did he do that how did he have that kind of faith well the scripture tells us back in romans i mean excuse me back in hebrews again how that worked out 17 verse 17 of hebrews 11 by faith abraham when he was tried offered up isaac and that he had and he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son. The scripture says he offered his son, and we know God stopped him when he had the knife in the air and said, "Abraham, Abraham, do thy son no harm." So how did he offer him? He offered him by faith, right? He offered him by faith of whom it was said and in Isaac shall thy seed be called Abraham, verse 19, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Isn't that, I don't even have words to say how astounding that is to me, that this man, way back then, I don't know if he'd ever known about a resurrection prior to that, had such deep faith in God that he felt he could sacrifice that son. God would raise him from the dead. Therefore, he told his servants, the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back and join you. So, in essence, the scripture says he did offer his son. He offered him in faith. He offered him in faith. There's another verse we don't want to skip while we're back here in Genesis about Abraham. And this is in chapter 18 verse 16 and following. And this is going back now to the messengers and the setting where Abraham begins to plead for Sodom. And we get a glimpse into this heavenly messenger that comes and the reason that God has chose Abraham as the one he was going to come and talk to about this in verse 18, verse 17, no, verse 16. And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of earth shall be blessed in him. Now verse 19, dear people. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he had spoken of him. God said, I know that this man, Abraham, that I've chosen as the founding father of the patriarchs. He will become a great nation. And what I know about him is he will direct his children, but his entire household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. And out of that faith and that commitment, God said, I can bless this man. And I can continue to work through him. Did Abraham do that? Did he do that? You see, God calls his people to a greater vision than just our own selves and our own families. But to reach out beyond that. We don't have time tonight to go through the whole story but he had a servant, Eliezer, and he sent Eliezer on a journey, a task, to find a wife for his son Isaac. And as you look at that story, you see a man who had a faith that closely mirrored that of his employer, right? He went down there, he prayed to God, and God, you know, if you want me to do this, this works, and, and it worked out. And he said, all right, this is the way God worked. Are you willing to... Release your daughter and let her go back with me. Abraham's influence went far beyond his own children. It went into uh, his employees as well. There was another time when uh, a group of kings came in and carried people away captive. And I believe Lot may have been carried away with that. And Abraham gathered up 318 servants and he went out and they won a victory over four, how many kings? No. No. Four kings that came in and defeated five kings. So Abraham takes 318 servants and goes out against the armies of four kings. And he defeats them and brings back Lot and his children and the spoil. And he met up with the king of Salem there. And that's, that's some other things that are deep. I believe he may have even met up with, with Jesus there. I'm not sure exactly how that was. But Abraham had tremendous influence. Can you imagine convincing 318 servants to go out and engage four kings and their armies in battle? He was a man of influence. Yes, the testimony is true. Eliezer said, the Lord of my master Abraham has sent me here to inquire about taking your daughter back with me. The Lord of my master Abraham. Now we'll move over to the nephew Lot. He obviously became a prominent man in the city. It indicates that he owned a house in the midst of the city. The men of the square were there awfully close to his house. It indicates that he sat in the gate, which would indicate that he was a man of of prestige and business, astute businessman there. And there's a lot about that culture I don't understand, but how could a man offer his daughters to the wicked men of the city the way Lot did? I don't understand that. But then we see the end result of what took place between the daughters and the father. There were some things lacking very much. You know, one of the saddest things to me about the story of Lot, when he went to his son-in-laws or the men who were espoused to Mary's daughters, whichever way it was, and he spoke to them about the impending judgment from God, the scripture says he seemed unto them as one that mocked. Isn't that sad? That this man, who had the potential and the influence to walk as Abraham walked, even his own son-in-laws did not pay attention to him when he spoke to them about the impending judgment of God. He lost out. He lost out. Why did God spare Lot's life? Anyone know the answer to that? It's in verse 29 of... Chapter 19, turn over one page to that. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. It was because of Abraham's intercession that Lot's life was spared. A man of influence. And then we come into the very sad story about Lot's daughters making their father drunk and raising up descendants through their father. Where did they learn these things? Around Abraham's stone altar or hanging out the mall in Sodom? Where did they learn this? While their father sat at the gate conducting business, what was his daughters doing? What were they learning? That they had these ideas in their heads then, after what were they learning? A man of vision, who can find? People of vision. Now, we're going to jump forward thousands of years. And I want to talk a little bit about, yet tonight, about a group of people who had vision and, and the willingness to sacrifice. And tonight, we as a people are standing on their shoulders. They're referred to as the greatest generation. They were born about 120 years ago. They were born right around the turn of the century. And someone has referred to them as the greatest generation. They're our great grandparents, or maybe grandparents, depending on our age. And by the time they reached their 40s and 50s, I want to tell you what all they'd already experienced. They'd already experienced World War I when they were in their early teens or less. They had already experienced losing friends and relatives to the Spanish flu pandemic when the soldiers came home from World War I. When they were in their 30s, they experienced the Great Depression and learned to live very frugally. When they were in their 40s, they experienced the horrors of World War II. And by the time they were 50 years old, they had all experienced all of this. Amongst my family heirlooms, (laughs) I have the draft cards of my grandfather. He was a married man. He was about 41 to 42 years old when he received and had to fill out these cards and appear before the board. They are post-dated May 5, 1943 and March 2, 1943. He was a married man, he had six children, he had a farm and he was struggling to make ends meet. But he had to appear before the board, it looks like, about every quarter, every four times a year, to continue to convince them that he was eligible to be excluded from the men who were being drafted to serve in World War II. Now think about that. Anybody in our generation ever faced anything like that? How many of you uh, were ever part of a draft or alternate service? I see your hands. Carol, anybody else? And you're 76, right? All right. You see, we've had two generations that have not had to experience that kind of testing or stand before a board of community people and give their testimony and convince them of the legitimacy of our faith and our life. But we may again. I have behind that a letter that my father wrote, seeking exemption also. He, would, he was born in 29, so it would have been at the end of World War II, when he was seeking exemption also. Or maybe it was, I don't know, maybe it was a war after that. I'm a little mixed up on my dates right now. But what I'm saying is, our parents and our grandparents were also a people of vision. And we are standing on their shoulders tonight. It was that generation and their children that had the vision and the perseverance to pursue the privilege and the reality of a Christian day school system. My older siblings started out in public school, and maybe some of you did too. But they, by the time I came along, I had the privilege of a Christian day school. And you know, I'm impressed. Ruth Showalter was one of the teachers, very influential in my life at school I went to. She's from Rocky Cedars. And she talks about the early days of her school teaching career. She was the first teacher there for the high school for the upper grade students, uh, grades five through eight. And she said they didn't have CLE and CLP and curriculum. They would take the secular textbooks home from them in the evening and they would go through and study the lessons and figure out what to edit out so they'd know what to teach the next day. Visionaries. Sacrifice for the generations to come. Apostle Paul was a man of vision and sacrifice. Let would like to consider three quotes from Apostle Paul's life. Romans 1, he says, I'm a debtor. In order to have that type of tenacity and vision and perseverance, we have to also embrace the fact that we are simply debtors to those who have gone before. We're debtors to Jesus Christ. He has given everything for us. He calls us to give everything for him. Apostle Paul said, I am a debtor, I'm a debtor, and I have a debt to pay. Paul said, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. And as much as in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Just like Abraham lived by faith in the old covenant, we too must live by faith in the new covenant. And Paul says, I'm ready to share that message anywhere God calls me to share it. And he said later, or yeah, he said somewhat later that that gave him the confidence to say, I'm free from the blood of all men because I've not shunned to declare in you the whole gospel of God. That was the commitment of his life. And he knew he was a debtor to those who went before him. He was standing on the shoulders of the Old Testament prophets and patriarchs, just like we today, not only are standing on their shoulders, but we're standing on the shoulders of the visionaries who went before us in the generations ahead of us, and we are indebted to carry that on. And how do we pay that debt? I'll tell you a story. Nabal Quresh, some of you may have heard of him. Seeking Allah, Finding God may be the name of his book, I'm not exactly sure. But he was a man who wrestled deep and long and hard with coming to faith in Jesus Christ and the the night he finally broke and gave his life and his heart to the Lord. He said he wept all night because he knew that he lost his relationship with his family. He knew his relationship with his family was done. It was over. But he said, the next morning when the sun came up, he walked out on the street, and for the first time in his life, he seen another human being walking past. And for the first time in his life, he thought, there is an eternal soul that needs Jesus Christ. The transformation that night in his life took him from not caring to caring. He said the first time in his life... And he sees, after that, and I don't understand, God took him, he was a powerful man of God, and God took him young with stomach cancer. But he he said he just felt the weight of the responsibility that now he was a Christian, he had to share it with everyone else. He was indebted. He understood his indebtedness. Do we understand our indebtedness and how to service that debt? We can't go back to our grand, great-grandparents and thank them. So how do we service our debt? We service our debt the way David and Esther service their debt by serving our generation, right? We serve our generation, and we transmit the faith that was given to us, and we, we show by example in life. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we cannot be either. Wherever we find ourselves, we cannot be ashamed to be identified as a radical follower of Jesus Christ. We have a message to share, and it's it's for everyone. It says it doesn't matter whether you're a Greek or a Jew or a barbarian or what you are. The message is for everyone. No one is excluded from coming to faith in Jesus Christ and spending eternity with God. The second thing the Apostle Paul made very clear, he said, I have not attained. Number one, I'm a debtor. Number two, I have not attained. And I won't read those verses, you know them well. Philippians chapter 3. But he said, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I want to identify with Christ, even in his suffering. Whatever it was with the life of Christ, Paul said, I'm willing to identify with that in my life. And I am not ashamed to be part of Jesus Christ. He said, I'm laying aside my past. I'm laying aside the prestige, all the, the things that he was, had put value in. He said they're nothing compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He had ancestry. He was from the right family. He had education. He had a Roman citizenship. He had everything, humanly speaking. But he said, I'm willing to lay it all aside. God is able to do amazing things through the lives of people who will lay everything on the altar, as Abraham did his son Isaac. God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me and follow me, because you are willing to lay your son on the altar. And I believe God is looking for us to lay our lives on the altar as well. John Wesley preached 40,000 sermons, rode 250,000 miles on horseback, had tracks printed in 15 different languages out of the 100 pieces of literature that he wrote. At the age of 83 he was still preaching 14 sermons a week and at the age of 86 he complained that he was struggling to rise up at 5:30 each morning for his regular prayer time. His home in Great Britain has been preserved. People can walk through it as a museum. They can view historical items from his life and ministry And as you exit that home, there's a monument there that has this inscription on it. It says, Sinner, if you feel constrained to praise the instrument, stop and give the glory to God. If you feel constrained to praise the instrument, stop and give the glory to God. A man who gave up everything for the service of God in his life refused to take any glory to himself Apostle Paul did that, and we must as well. That's part of laying aside prestige to follow God. And the third thing is the desire to finish our course with joy. To finish our course with joy. And we know that. Apostle Paul said that, his, that he wanted to finish. Actually, I'll turn to that. 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter. 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter. And Paul is speaking, he's, he's entering his journey with a sense of peace and he identifies three keys to finish well. Let's notice those. He's instructing this young Timothy to be watchful in all things, to endure affliction, do the work of evangelists, make full proof of thy ministry. Verse 6, chapter 4, For now I'm ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. That's a mariner's term. It's a ship that's setting in the dock, and, and they've lifted the anchors, and they're starting to unfurl the sails, and the wind is starting to blow. And he says, I'm getting ready to leave the port. He says, my departure at his hand. Number one, he says, I fought a good fight. He fought a good fight. Fight on my soul till death. He says, I have finished my course. He ran his portion of the race. And I see it as a relay race. He had ran his portion of the race well as Esther had ran her portion and as David had ran his portion and Abraham had ran his portion. But it's a relay race because Paul, in the midst of this teaching, is handing the baton to his successor, Timothy, and he's instructed him how to run. And that's another responsibility we have. Are we instructing those who come behind us How to run the race. By example and precept. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness with the Lord. The righteous judge shall give me that day. And not unto me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. It isn't just for Paul. The crown isn't just for him. It's for all those who love his appearing and are following his example. Keep running the race till it's completed. Keep running the race. He says, I've kept the faith. I did not drop the baton in my life. He carefully handed it to the next runner. And i say this again, choose a destination and accept the path. Generations of faithful Christian heritage can be spurned by one generation who focuses on ease and comfort. May we not be that generation. May we not be that generation. Years ago, there was a Christian missionary who had a vision to go to China and he studied the Chinese language, he mastered it well in the culture and that was back when the idea of internal combustion engines was starting to spread around the world and the Standard Oil Company of New York was looking to open a base in China and they learned about this man and his uh, linguistic abilities. And they wanted Mr. Jaffers, his name was Jaffers, on their team to sell their oil and to build their company, and and be their man for China. And they wrote Mr. Jaffers a letter and they offered him a large salary and he turned it down. They wrote him a second letter and they doubled the salary. He turned it down. They wrote him a third letter and they said, Mr. Jaffers, we want you to come work for us at any price you name the price. He wrote them a letter back, and it was a very short letter. It had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight words in it. He wrote them a letter back, and it was one line. It says, Your salary is large, but your job is too small. Your salary is large, but your job is too small. <laughs> See, he had a vision like Abraham. For a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker was God. And all the money that the Standard Oil Company had worldwide could not entice him away from his commitment to the job that was bigger. To the job that was bigger. At the end of this service, I'd like for you to lead the song A Charge to Keep I Have. Might be 894, not sure. God is calling our lives as well. And he's not calling us for a large salary, the acclamation of wealth, accumulation of wealth. He is calling us to a job that's bigger than we are. And we can't do it ourselves. We can only do it by faith as we walk with him. He's calling us to walk faithfully and dedicate our lives to building his kingdom in this world today. By leading souls to life in Christ. And we have the foundation upon which to build. We have the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God. And not only do we have that, we have the blessing of a heritage of godly lives going before us. We have that heritage. May God bless us and lead us as well. May we fulfill that leading in our lives. I think I'm going to read that song again. And then following that, I'll look to Brother Dave to lead uh, the song that I requested. We are pilgrims on a journey of the narrow road, and those who've gone before us line the way, cheering the faithful. And we didn't even get there this evening. I wanted to spend some time in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Laying aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us, let us run with, ration, run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finish for our faith, who endured the cross, the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. That fits right here, and this song references that twice. I don't know if you picked that up. We're pilgrims on the journey of the narrow road, and those who've gone before us line the way cheering the faithful. That's Hebrews 12.1 encompassed about so great great a cloud of witnesses. Encouraging the weary, their lives a stirring testament of God's sustaining grace. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe and the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. Surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race not only for the prize, but as those who've gone before us, let's leave to those behind us the heritage of faithfulness passed on through godly lives. After all their hopes and dreams have come and gone and our children sift through what we've left behind, may the clues that they discover and the memories they uncover become the light that leads them to the road we all must find. As brother Dave leads us in that song, consider very carefully the words especially the second verse. And if you want to make a public commitment tonight of being faithful in your generation, I invite you to simply stand to your feet, or maybe you've never come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you'd like to do that and make that proclamation. And it began on that journey that Nabel Koresh started one night, and he woke up the next morning and he had compassion for souls that he'd never experienced before. Whatever God speaks to your heart, feel free to stand to your feet, and God will meet you in that need. So let's sing together. What's the number of that song? 894.